Okay, good evening, everybody. Everybody can take their seats. Okay, good evening. Welcome, Calvary Chapel. Well, for those that don't know me, my name is Glenn Siegel. Uh, And I'm up here this evening not just to give Pastor Tim a much-needed rest so he can kick back and relax tonight. Uh, I'm up here because I've had the blessing and I've had the absolute honor to be part of his uh, mentor group for the past two years. And as part of that group, uh, we get to be up here and I get the absolute opportunity and joy to be able to share God's word with you this evening. But before I get into the message tonight, I'd like to open up by asking everybody a, a question. The question is, I'd like to ask you, How have you responded in your life when God has asked you to do something, when God has put a calling on you? Did you respond immediately? Did you respond willingly? Did you respond with confidence, seizing the opportunity that God has given you? I'd love to sit up here tonight and tell you that is how I respond, but that would absolutely not be true. I often respond with doubt, with hesitation. Because the thing is, when God asks us to do something, so often he asks us to do something that takes us completely out of our comfort zone. It brings us to a place where we feel we don't have even the ability to do what God has asked us to do. And that brings in that doubt. That brings in that fear. That brings in those worries. Maybe that brings in some excuses. And I get it. But if you're like me, you can take comfort in knowing that when you can turn to God's word and see that some of the greatest men of faith often struggled in the exact same way. And that brings us to our study tonight. You can open up your Bibles to Judges chapter 6. And while you turn there, I'm just going to give you a little background on the book of Judges for anybody that may not be familiar. And the book of Judges starts off shortly after Joshua has just led the Israelites. They're now into the promised land. They're in the land of Canaan. And it covers that time period from where they're about to settle in the promised land, going all the way up to when Israel turns to a monarchy, where they are asking for a king, and God will use Samuel to anoint Saul as the first king of Israel. And it covers about a 325, 325 years in Israel's history, which what should be a period of great prosperity is actually a period of tremendous darkness. Because over these 325 years, It's going to really show how Israel is an incredibly unfaithful people. They fail to drive out the nations around them, and they are going to continue to turn into this pattern, this cycle, where we're going to see Israel follow their own ways, follow their own desires, turn away from God, allow the nations around them to lead them away and worship other gods, and then it's going to lead them into sin. They're going to fall into sin, and then God is going to use the neighboring nations and raise them up to overpower Israel. Israel is going to suffer the consequences of their sin, where they are then going to bring them to a point where they cry out in supplication for God, to God to bring them a savior, to save them from their sins. And then God is going to answer the calls of his people, where he's going to raise up a man or woman to be a judge or a leader that's going to deliver Israel out of the suffering of their sins. And they're going to do that for a time period, and then they're going to fall right back into that pattern of sin in their life. They're going to backslide, go through a period of peace, 
and fall right back into that pattern again and again. We're going to see that throughout this period of history in the book of Judges. One of those men that God is going to raise up is a young farmer named Gideon. Gideon is the fifth judge that God will raise up, fifth judge of Israel, and he's going to be used to defeat the army of Midian. What's interesting is there are more verses in the book of Judges written about Gideon than any other of the judges. Uh, A lot of us, when we think of the book of Judges, we may think of uh, Samson. I know I certainly do. Uh, But there's actually more written, more verses written of Gideon than any of the judges. So we really, God reveals to us the humanity of Gideon. But this evening, we're not going to be looking so much as the li- at the life of Gideon. Rather, we're going to be stu- spending our time specifically looking at the calling of Gideon, specifically focusing on this incredible interaction between Gideon and the angel of God. And we're going to take us up to about verse 27 uh, in the book. And we're going to study this encounter not so much from a perspective of what it shows us about the man that Gideon is, although we're certainly going to see some of that, but more importantly, what the calling of Gideon reveals to us about who God is and how that applies to our life. When we are facing those situations where God asks us to do something and we feel like we simply don't have the ability to do it, we feel like we're not capable of doing what God has called us to do. And I started out asking everybody that question of how have you reacted? How have you responded when God has asked you to do something? I'd like to actually take that a little deeper and challenge you And over the course of this study, you ask yourself, is there anything in your life right now that God has been asking you to do, that God has been calling you to do? Maybe the Holy Spirit has been prompting you to do something, and you simply haven't responded yet. You haven't done it for whatever reason. Maybe it's doubt. Maybe it's feeling like you don't have the time, especially in the days we're living in right now. I get it. We're all busier than ever. Maybe you feel like you simply don't have the ability for what God has asked you to do. And I believe that's what the Lord is saying to us tonight, is God wants to take all of us out of our comfort zone, especially the day and the age that we're living in right now. He wants us to go to a higher level of faith. He wants us to move forward and step out in whatever that is that he put on on our heart, whatever he's asked us to do in this season right now. So I hope this evening as we go through our study on the calling of Gideon, I'm going to leave you with four truths about God that we can apply to our life and leave here encouraged by God's word through the Holy Spirit and how to take that step of faith forward when God asks us to do something we don't feel like we're capable of doing. Let's close our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we just thank you, Lord, that we can be here this evening, Lord Father God. Thank you for the freedoms that we have to be in your house, Lord Father God. Uh, Just thank you, Lord, that we have your word and your truth, Lord Father God. I pray, Lord, that you completely empty me of self, Lord Father God, uh, that you fill me, Lord Father God, and you speak through me, Lord, fill me with the Holy Spirit, Lord Father God, and you just prepare the hearts, Lord Father. Open up the mind, open up the hearts, open up the eyes of all those here this evening, Lord Father God, so they can receive what it is uh, that you have to speak to us tonight. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. We'll get into the text, and we'll go up to verse 6 as we read through it. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. 
For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in numbers, but they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for the help to the Lord. So we start off right off in the first verse. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You know, when I read this, I kind of picture, you know, in every Star Wars movie, it opens up with that slow scroll across the screen a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. That's what comes into my mind when I see this. Uh, If George Lucas made a series of movies on the book of Judges, which would be weird and probably really biblically inaccurate, he would start every film with... The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, because you get to see that repeated so often in the book of Judges. So after a period of peace, Israel falls right back. They go after their fleshly desires. They turn the back of God again, and they go right back to sinning in the sight of the Lord. And this time, God is going to raise up the people of Midian uh, to be God's instrument, that God's going to use to discipline his people, and he's going to use the, Midian, the Midianites to do it. So a little background on who Midian is, uh, just so we understand. Uh, Abraham, they're actually descendants of Abraham, uh, through Abraham's second wife. Uh, Abraham did get married after Sarah died at the amazing age of 137 years old. Uh, Abraham would marry his second wife, Keturah, and with Keturah he would go on to have six children, all of which were boys. The fourth boy uh, was Midian. And there is a lot of history between the Midianites and Israel. You may remember in Exodus chapter 2, Moses had to flee far away after he killed an Egyptian, uh, intervening on behalf of an Israelite. Uh, He fled Egypt out of fear that Pharaoh would kill him. He fled far away to the land of Midian, where Moses would then meet his wife, Zipporah, and his uncle-in-law, Jethro. And despite those connections, Midian actually would be great adversaries to Israel. They would be a constant thorn in the side of Israel, understandably so. We know that Abraham gave all of his blessings to Isaac, his promised firstborn son, and with the six sons that he had with Keturah, he gave them gifts, and he basically sent them packing out to the east where they would go and they would settle far to the south of Canaan, where they would settle in the desert, and the Midianites would become desert dwellers, desert raiders, nomadic desert people. Uh, They would become so much of a hindrance and an issue to the Israelites that in Numbers 31, God will actually ask Moses to raise up an army of 12,000, 12,000 men, to ultimately destroy the people of Midian because Midian at that time was working together with the Moabites and they were kind of seducing, especially the men of Israel, away from God to worship Baal. And ultimately, the Israelites, like they did so many times, would not carry that out. They would not ultimately destroy all the Midianites. And here we are right now again, where now God is going to use them. And that's really the purpose of them in this chapter. They are used as the instrument by which that God would punish his people. God essentially is going to spank Israel again because that's what God does, right? That's what we do when our children, they don't listen to us. 
some old school families, maybe you're picking up the ruler to kind of hit your kid. Well, think of the Midianites as the ruler, the instrument of which God is going to discipline his children because they are not obeying. In fact, Moses told us as much. He said, as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you so that you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by working in his ways and by fearing him. And that's what's going on here. It's what God does to us, right? When we don't repent from our sins, God will chastise his people. God chastises us to get our hearts into a place where we are willing to listen to God's word. And that's what God is doing here to Israel. So these first six verses, they also kind of serve as the introduction of where we are and kind of gives an insight or a picture of what exactly sin does in our life. Uh, you see that the Israelites, how they're living now as a result of their sin. They are forced to live in caves, in the dens, in the caverns, in the strongholds on the side of mountains. That's not the way they were meant to live. They were meant to live in the land flowing with milk and honey. Instead, they're forced to live in caverns. And that's what sin in caves, that's what sin does in our life, is that we lose our spirit of peace when we're walking in sin. We lose our ability to be in the light, right? We, that's what we're called to be, children of light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have light of life. Well, Israel clearly is walking in darkness because they are not following God right now. And we're seeing the consequences of that. I kind of picture in my mind when I read this, I kind of think of Gollum in Lord of the Rings, right? Gollum is this creature forced to live in the dens. He's holding on to his precious ring. His, he won't let go of his ways. And that's what Israel's doing here. They're living like Gollum. They're living in the caves. They should be living out in the open, living in the light. And they are not able to as a consequence of their sin. And we also see here another image of what sin does in our life is that it keeps us from walking into the blessings that God has for us. We're not able to always receive the blessings God has because of the sin in our unrepentant hearts. In Deuteronomy 8, Moses tells Israel that they're going to be in a land where they would eat bread without scarcity, where they would lack nothing. They shall eat and be full, and now look at what they are left with. It says that Israel, their land was laid to waste. Every time they planted the crops, the Midianites would come in. They would take all their food. They would be left to starvation. They were left with nothing. That's the consequence of their sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we see that Israel is eventually brought into starvation. That's what it's going to take to get them to finally fall to their knees and cry out for God to save them again. And God is going to answer the cries of his people. I don't believe Israel at this point has repentant hearts, but the Lord does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. And aren't you glad of that? Because that's what we see here. God hears the cry, hears the afflictions of his people, and out of his faithful promise, his tender mercies, he is going to deliver Israel from this but he's not going to answer as they expect yet. He's not going to bring them a savior yet. And we will continue verse 7 up to 10. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So God is going to answer with the prophet. 
before he answers with the deliverer. And the purpose of the prophet here is to rebuke the people of Israel. Their hearts are not in a place of repentance yet, so God is going to bring the prophet. The scripture doesn't tell us who this prophet is. But we do know that he speaks on behalf of the Lord. He speaks on the word of God. And he's there essentially to rebuke Israel. He's going to remind Israel of all that God has done to them, how God has been with them, who God is, and what God has told them. In verse 10, but you have not obeyed my voice. So really the role of the prophet here is to prepare Israel's hearts so they get to a point of repentance and basically to set the record straight, telling the Israelites that all that he's done, who he is, what he told them to do, essentially what we often do when we're sinning is that we point fingers, right? We point to somebody else. Israel is pointing to the Midianites saying, we're suffering because of the Midianites, but that's not what the prophet is saying. That's not what God is saying to them. No, you're suffering because of your stiff necks, because you have turned your back to God. You have not obeyed. You have not walked in the ways you are called to walk. And that is the reason we are suffering. And I do believe that Israel turns to repentance because ultimately God will raise up a deliverer. And now we're introduced to Gideon. And we'll start just reading through this. Start with verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Here we're introduced to Gideon. We're also introduced to the angel of the Lord. Now, it doesn't say specifically who the angel of the Lord is, but we do know as we continue to read that this is actually Jesus Christ. This is a what's called to a theophany or Christophany. It is a pre-New Testament, an Old Testament incarnation of Jesus. He's not fully human. He's not fully God, fully human here. He's simply taking on the form of man to convey something, which happens several times throughout the Old Testament. And then we're also introduced to Gideon. And I want to paint the picture here because it's so important from what we see in this incredible interaction between Gideon and the angel of God says that the angel sits down under the Ophrah tree. Some of your Bibles may say the oak tree. And, you know, he, I, I picture he's sitting down and kind of means that he's observing Gideon. And what does he see that Gideon is doing? Gideon is down in the bottom of a well trying to thresh wheat. And I'm no farmer, but I know that wheat is not meant to be threshed in the bottom of a wine press. Wheat is meant to be threshed out in the open. So meat is meant to be, <clears throat> wheat is meant to be threshed. Uh, the farmers would gather the wheat. They would, after it was harvested, they would put it into, um, they would wrap it up. They would take it up onto the um, a plateau, a threshing floor that was usually somewhere elevated, maybe made of clay, maybe made of stone, uh, up high where there would be breeze. They would take the wheat, they would throw it up into the air, and they would want to get that grain. The cool breeze that would blow through would whisk away the, the chaff, leaving the grain behind. They would use a threshing, flo- a, for- a threshing fork to catch the grain that would fall. The way Gideon was doing it here is that Gideon was trying to, ESV says he was actually beating the wheat. He was down in the wine press, dark, damp place, probably not smelling too good, trying to smack the grain up against the wall. 
And he was trying to work in a way that, again, the result of sin, that he was not meant to be working. And the angel of God is looking at Gideon, and this is the picture that he's seeing. That Imagine Gideon's frustrations here right now. And the angel of God introduces and says one of the most amazing introductions, um, one of the least expected introductions uh, that we can see, in that Gideon um, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And we'll just stop there. Sorry, lost my notes. In verse 12, it reveals two of the most important truths of God that we can apply in our life. And I want to focus first on what's the first thing that the angel says to Gideon. The first thing that the angel says to Gideon is, the Lord is with you. And this is key. Because you get to see no matter what, Gideon, whatever Gideon replies with in this interaction between the angel, that God is always going to answer to Gideon something either reminding him that God is with him or that it's God that sent him. And the very first thing that is, the angel says to Gideon is, the Lord is with you. And this is so important because God is with us. And that's the first key to remember. When God calls us, when God asks us to do something that we don't believe that we're called to do, remember that God is with us. That is essential in taking that step of faith forward when we feel inside that we can't possibly do what God has asked us to do. And we all know this, right? I mean, the very name, Emmanuel, God is with us. It's kind of Christian 101. You know, this is basic stuff. My wife and I, we teach Sunday school here, and we work with the preschoolers ages four to five. And we're already teaching them at that age. We're reading stories such as Daniel and the fiery furnace, you know, these great examples that illustrate that God is with us. So they know this already at such a young age. We know this, but it's so funny how often in our life, in our adult walk, the second God challenges us, the second God asks us to do something that we feel we're not capable of, we forget that God is with us. And I think that's really the key here of why this is the very first thing that God says to Gideon here, simply reminding him that the Lord is with us. And you're going to see Moses is going to remind Israel of this throughout the Old Testament, throughout Deuteronomy, when Israel is about to go into the promised land and Moses is at the age of 120 years old now and he knows that he's not going to be one that to bring them into the promised land. Joshua is going to be one to take them there. Right before they go in, in Deuteronomy chapter 31, Moses makes a point to say twice to Israel and to Joshua and let them know that the Lord goes before you and he will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. So they're able to move into the promised land by faith because God is with them. God goes before them. And Jesus said the same thing to his disciples. I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot see him. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And the Greek word there is used, uh, translated, the Greek um, is parakletos, which is one who is by your side, especially in help. 
God is indwelling in us. We have the Holy Spirit in us, by our side, with us, in our walk to strengthen faith. So the first application here is to remember, when God asks you to do something that you feel you're not capable of doing, know that God is with you. You're not doing it alone. But the second thing the angel says is more shocking to Gideon. It's probably the last thing that Gideon would probably expect anybody to say to him as he's down in this wine press, smacking this wheat up against the, the, the wall, picture I picture kind of, you know, husks of the wheat, the chaff in his beard, stuck in his hair. I mean, you know, he is not exactly feeling like a man of valor, right? Right? Right now? And what does the angel say to him? Forgive me the very dry mouth. He calls him a mighty man of valor. Valor means one who has courage in the, great, in the face of great danger. Uh, the Hebrew is kail. Kail, it kind of means the strength of an army. How is that possible that the Lord can say that to Gideon in a situation like this? It's certainly not exactly how Gideon is feeling. And, you know, it certainly, sh- it certainly shows that God knows the ending from the beginning, right? I mean, we all know that God knows the plans he has for us. Uh, God in- tells Jeremiah in verse one, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I set you as a prophet to the nations. Um, and we know that God knows the calling he has for each and every one of us. But I believe the application here, what's so awesome, what this reveals to us, is that God is able, the angel is able to say this of Gideon, call him a mighty man of valor, because God looks at us through spiritual eyes. God looks at us and he sees our heavenly potential in us. God doesn't see things the way we do. Often we look at our situation around us. God asks us to do something that we don't feel we're capable of. And we look through our eyes at ourselves. We look in the mirror. We see maybe the worst qualities we have. We see all the things we can't do. We look at what our eyes sees and the circumstances around us. And we define ourselves by maybe a hurtful word a loved one says, says to us. We define ourselves and our abilities by the circumstances that we're walking in right now. And when we look at things through our perspective, we limit what God can do through us. But God doesn't look at us that way, and that's the key here. That's the application. God looks through us through spiritual eyes. God sees that which is unseen. Um, How can that be? Well, one of the things my wife and I, we love to do um, is we love to drive around all of New Jersey. We pick places we can take a drive through in the autumn to look at the leaves changing. It is amazing, amazing the tapestry of colors that you see, especially in New Jersey. There's some awesome spots, all the different colors of the leaves. We love to do that. But did you know that leaves actually are not truly, <clears throat> excuse me, not really green? That's not the way that they are. And I'm not, you know, really that into science like Pastor Tim. I actually learned this from one of my daughter's uh, devotionals. So, uh, you know, my science science knowledge isn't that great, but when we read this, I'm like, wow, this totally applies. Leaves aren't really green. They only seem that way. Each leaf contains chlorophyll, the green that captures the light and turns it into the food for the trees. It's the green that hides the leaf's true colors. In the autumn, trees produce less chlorophyll, and the green fades away, so the leaves then show their true colors. Those blazing reds, 
the bright yellows, those beautiful golds that depict that tapestry that I talk about that I love so much. You see, the leaves, they were always those brilliant colors. We just couldn't see them. And that's the way God sees us. Gideon has all the qualities of a mighty man of valor. He always did, and God knows what he called him to do. It's just that Gideon can't see that in, in himself. We can't see what God sees through us. God looks at the heart. God sees what, that which is not seen. And you need proof of that. Look at Samuel. Samuel, one of Israel's judges, by the way, one of Israel's, Israel's priests, Samuel had to anoint the next king of Israel after Saul was rejected by God. And Samuel went to the family, went to David, I mean, went to Jesse. He went to Jesse, and he, has, and he goes before Jesse to see Jesse's sons, and he's looking over Jesse's sons, and he's looking them all over, and he's checking them out, and he goes, I know who the next king of Israel is. I nailed it. It's Eliab, but not quite. It says that Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at our heart. We often can't see what's there, but God sees what's there in us. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, For our light and our momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is unseen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. What is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. God looks at us and he sees our heavenly, eternal potential in us. So that's the second application here. First, remember that God is with you and look at your situation, look at your circumstances you're in. When you feel doubt, when you feel like you can't do what the Lord has called you to do, take that step forward in faith and walk into it and look through spiritual eyes. Pray that the Holy Spirit opens up the eyes of your heart and you can see spiritually what God sees. Hope that can be encouraging. So let's look at Gideon's response. In verse 13, And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. So, Gideon's kind of responding here with some frustrations. He knows what God has done. He's heard what his ancestors have said. He believes in the miracles of God. He just has not seen, he has not experienced it yet. He's looking at what's going on in Israel right now. He's seeing, God, where are you? Have you forsaken us? I see the sin around me. I see what we've been brought to. I'm yearning for the miracles that you've done, but I don't see them. I certainly can relate to that. I mean, how many times have, have we, I certainly have, made the mistake of putting the news on, and I see what's going on in the world, and I'm looking around us, I'm seeing the, the attacks, I'm seeing a country that we live in right now that's turning its backs to God. We're suffering the consequences of that. I'm looking at what's going on, the attack on our children, the attack on our families, the cost of everything going up. I mean, the world we're living in today is descending rapidly into darkness, and Often I've cried out, God, how much longer are you going to delay? When are you going to bring your justice to the wicked? So I understand 
the frustration that Gideon is showing here. Gideon's being real, right? Gideon's looking around and he's saying, God, when are you going to step in? When are you going to intervene? He's asking God these questions, and I love the Lord's reaction here. It says, And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. Notice how God kind of brushes off the questions. He doesn't answer Gideon, right? He doesn't respond to the questions that Gideon has. It says that he turns to Gideon. You know, sometimes our daughter, she's five now, and she doesn't always do what she's supposed to do. Uh, She's usually really good, but sometimes she just doesn't want to obey. She doesn't do what we ask her to do. And we'll ask her to do something, and she will give these incredibly long-winded responses. She puts so much energy into it. She defends herself. She's this little five-year-old that kind of acts like a lawyer, and she gives us all the reasons she's not supposed to be doing what she should be doing. And we won't really answer You know, sometimes I'll just get down at her level, I'll look at her in the eyes, and I'll just say, can you just take all of that energy you just gave me right now and simply do what we asked you to do? And that's kind of what I picture God, how I picture God, the angel responding to Gideon right here. He just simply turns and looks at him and says, go in this might of yours, did not I send you? And again, there's that reminder that God is with you, did not I send you? So Gideon, of course, is going to have another response. In verse verse 15, And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one. So now that doubt comes in with Gideon. Gideon is starting to, you know, he's saying here how unqualified he is for the task. All the reasons why he can't do it. He's from the people considered the lowest, the weakest family in Manasseh. And of his lowest family, he's the lowest in his family. Gideon looks at himself and he sees himself as the lowest of the low. It's some self-doubt. It's some humility. Gideon doesn't think much of himself. And I truly relate to this here. Um, I have to confess, this is often my initial response when God asks me to do something. I get full of self-doubt. I feel like I'm not worthy. I feel like I don't have the ability to do it often when God asks me to do something that I don't feel I'm capable of doing. Uh, The Lord has worked on that, and uh, the enemy has definitely used it as an attack on me, even as I'm preparing this teaching tonight. I'm willing to do it. I want to do it, but often I feel like I'm not qualified to do it. I'm the least qualified person to be up before you today and share God's word. You see, I didn't grow up in a family that was a Christian family. I grew up in a family that really never spoke of God, never spoke of the Lord. We didn't talk much of faith. Those kind of discussions really didn't happen in my family. And I didn't give my life to Jesus until I was well into my 20s. Um, It took a tremendous um, tragedy, hardships, Um, that would ultimately lead my entire family uh, to give their lives to Jesus. And my parents are here today, and they will be the first to tell you that I was the hardest heart in my family, and I was the last to do so. Um, I really wasted most of my youth, my teenage years, and my early 20s pursuing fleshly desires and going into that would lead me to absolute emptiness, 
I suffered terribly with severe depression. I pushed everybody away in my life, all of my loved ones away, and I really wasted my youthful years. Ultimately, I would give my life to Jesus through much suffering. And, you know, talking about what God asked you to do, that's really the most important calling we have. When God is reaching out to us and calling to us, to accept the love of Christ into our hearts. And I want to encourage, if there's anybody in here today, that's where everything begins, by simply accepting the Lord into your heart as your Savior, repenting from your sins, crying out to him, believing that God sent his only son to die for us, that he gave his life for you, that your sins are made clean, but more than that, you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus himself and that his grace is freely given to you, no matter how hopeless you feel, and that Jesus rose again, he's alive today, he's by the right hand of God, He ascended into heaven, where he is interceding on behalf to this very day, and he's going to come again to judge the wicked, to judge the living and the dead. And when you believe that, you're taking that greatest step of faith. I didn't do that until I was much older, and all of that, I tell you that because I'm sitting up here today, One, to be a testimony that we serve a God that can restore the years that the locusts took away from us. And I'm up here today because I am incredibly weak. I am so weak. But I'm a willing vessel, and in my weakness, Christ is made strong. And I'm just up here to glorify God. And that's the third application, that God looks for those that are weak. He looks for those that are humble. And God looks for those so that he can get all the glory. And that's why I believe God shows Gideon. It's also why I definitely can relate to Gideon. And we see that when Paul is asking God to remove the thorn from his side, God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. There I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults and hardships, in persecution and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And that's the third application. God delights in using the weak and the humble so that he can get all the glory. Amen? And God will respond again to Gideon. And remind him, and the Lord said to him in verse 16, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is to you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon now is asking for some confirmation. And Gideon's going to need a little more because he's still doubting a little bit. He's not doubting who God is. In Gideon's case, God called Gideon to do a mighty work, far above anything Gideon ever imagined to do. And Gideon's going to want some confirmation in that. We're going to read from verse 19 up to verse 24. So Gideon went into the house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot, and he brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. 
and he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the top of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. And then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abyssalites. So Gideon's asking God for a confirmation, and I don't think that's a bad thing. If God asks you to do something that you feel you can't possibly do, you feel you're not qualified to do, you feel there's no way you can do it, wouldn't you want to be sure that it's God asking you to do it? Right? I would call that wise. In fact, John says as much. We're told we do not, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So if God's calling you to do a great task, you're going to want to know truly that God is calling you to do it. You're going to want that confirmation, and I believe when we're walking in God's will, when God sees the purity of our heart and, our, and what we're, we're trying to do for him, God's going to honor that, and God honors that here. God wants to give us, and he will give us that confirmation so we can boldly move forward by faith into the work that he's called us to do. Uh, you know, my wife and I, if God opens up a door, we'll share our testimony sometime. But, you know, one of the things that, uh, it's an incredible story, um, truly, of how God's worked in both of our lives. But I had to fly out one time to China, um, and I have barely traveled in my life. The farthest I've ever traveled on my own is to Ohio. So for me getting on a plane to go out to China, I didn't go out there with my wife. She was already over there. We weren't married yet. And I was going out there on my own, getting on a plane to take a 19-and-a-half-hour flight to a connecting flight for another four-and-a-half hours. So basically almost 25 hours of flying to her hometown, something that I never imagined in my life that I would ever do. And God would confirm our every step from the moment we met each other. We had confirmations all along the way. But when I was getting on that airplane by myself, I got to tell you that panic set in. And in that moment in the airport, I can remember where I was standing. And right there, I just prayed. I called out to God and I said, Jesus, I need you to show me right now that you are with me. Because all those feelings, I'm thinking of every news article I read, because China was in the news a lot at that time, like they are right now. Uh, I'm thinking everything I'm about to go to, uh, all these thoughts are going through my mind. And I said, Jesus, I need you to show me right now that you're with me. And in my prayer, I feel something bump up against my leg. I open up my eyes, I look down, and the guy coming up behind me in line puts his suitcase down right next to me, and I look down and his first name, his name is Jesus, Jesus. And I'm like, okay, Jesus, Lord, you're with me. I have that photo still on my phone to this day. So, I mean, you know, right there in that moment, I mean, I was going like crossing over and I needed some confirmation and God answered that. So as he would every step of, of, of uh, our way there. So, I mean, that's what Gideon's doing here. He wants confirmation so he can boldly go out and carry out the work that God does for him. And God's going to give him the confirmation that he was asking for. Gideon, you know, he goes home, he makes a little something, he brings it back to the, the angel, and God's going to give him a miraculous sign. He's going to give him some consuming fire. As we know in Deuteronomy, the Lord is consuming fire. He's going to vanish, leaving no doubt to Gideon that this is indeed God that he was speaking to. We're going to read right up to verse 27. 
That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So Gideon at this point, he's probably ready to go. I mean, he just found out, think of the day that he just had. He just found out that he's going to be the one that God is going to use to crush the Midianites, defeat the Midianites. He's probably saying, Lord, how are you going to use me? I'm ready to go. Let's do this. And what does God ask Gideon to do? God gives him more work to do. And God says, wait, I got something you need to do first. You need to go and you need to clean, out, clean up what's going on in your family. You have your father is worshiping false idols. You have them right in your backyard. And you got to do that. You got to take care of that first. Before I got the work, it's going to be there for you. I'm going to use you. But you got to clean up your own backyard first. And I believe this is going to lead us to the fourth truth about God. And that is, fourth truth about God, who God is, when he's asking us to do something we feel that we can't possibly do. That is, don't avoid what God is asking you to do because you feel you're not ready for it yet, because you feel maybe you got some baggage in your life, because you feel, well, I got family problems, you know, I got this going on, I'm not prepared, because... Notice that God gave Gideon the calling first. That's what God did first. And then God asked Gideon to clean up, you know, take care of the sin that's in his own family. Take care of what he needs to do. God will give us the calling. God doesn't wait for us to get our act in order. What he waits for us is he's looking for us to take that step forward by faith. And then God is going to continually work in us, continually to prepare us to step forward into the calling that he has for us. Look at Peter. I mean, Peter probably is not somebody the people around him at the time thought of as being a rock. I mean, Peter was all over the place, right? Peter was a little erratic. He constantly put his foot in his mouth. His temperament was up and down. Yet Jesus would say to him, you are the rock upon which I will build my church. And look at who Peter would become. There may not be no man more solid than Peter in Scripture, but he didn't start out that way. So when God gives us a calling, he's not waiting for us to have our act together. He's not looking for us to be perfect. Somebody said to me once that God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. So don't avoid doing something because you feel you're not ready to do it. I mean, Gideon is full of fear. Gideon is full of doubt. Gideon's got some family issues. You know, his family's worshiping other gods. But yet God can use Gideon. We see that Gideon, despite his fears, despite his doubts, despite his worries, he steps out by faith and does all the Lord calls him to do. The author of Hebrews, when writing of the great examples of faith and action, writes of Gideon among the heroes of faith alongside David. Hopefully this study this evening can encourage you remembering that God is with you. When God has asked you to do something, don't limit God by what you see in yourself, by what your eyes see, by what you see in your circumstances. Remember, ask God to open up the eyes of your heart. Look through spiritual eyes. God gave, is looking to use those that are weak. He's looking to use those that are humble. 
When we are weak, he is made strong. And recognizing your weakness, God's power is made perfect. And simply take the step forward by faith. When God has called you to do something, and as you do, he will continue to direct your steps and continue the work he began in you. Paul tells us, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and things that are not to nullify things that are so that no one man may boast before him. Let's close our eyes in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, uh, just thank you, Lord Father God, that we know you are with us, Lord Father God. We know you go before us. We know, Lord Father God, that you have plans for each and every one of us, Lord Father God. I just pray for all those here this evening, all those listening, Lord Father God, that if they have any barriers, any obstacles in their life, you could break down the strongholds that are in their heart, Lord Father God, and give them the faith to step forward, Lord Father God, to walk into whatever the work is, whatever it is that you've asked us to do, Lord Father God. Uh, Thank you for this evening and this time together. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.